I'm Dan. I'm Elaine. And this is Sublime True Crime. This week, we discussed the Peterborough Ditch Murders, a series of murders that took place in Cambridgeshire, carried out by Joanna Christine Dennehy. Joanna again. Joanna again, yes. We did signpost this last week, didn't we? <laughs> Joanna again. And the reason for this is that uh, not only is it another Joanna for me to talk about, it's a female serial killer. Yes. So it's a woman killing men, because quite frankly, I was fed up of men killing men. Women. Well, especially men killing women called Joanna. So, yeah, this is like the Joanna's getting the revenge. It is. You're making me sound like she's some kind of superhero. <laughs> she's really not. She's really she's not. Really not a superhero. We need to also start by saying that this is delayed. This episode because we yes. had what can only be described as the week from hell last week. Yes. With things going wrong, which uh, culminated in a last-minute dash 250 miles down the country to go and visit my poor old mum. So the episode was mostly written up and not recorded at all well normally we sort of plan to record it on friday and then actually record it on saturday <laughs> um, and then you do your editing stuff and but, it goes up on sunday but this time obviously we were in a hotel room with, with kids with two children <laughs> in the room with us as well so it wasn't really appropriate to yes. talk about a serial killer and although they're intrigued they're almost teens and a teen um although they're intrigued about serial killers and podcasts it's probably not best to introduce them I just yet. I don't think so. No. no, not yet. You may have been lucky enough to see our quick vlog that we did on the way back, um, yes. which was, I, I viewed it on Facebook last night, and it was the bounciest piece of footage I've ever seen in my life. It was a really bouncy road. Oh, yeah, I felt really nauseous. After I uploaded it, um, I thought I should have gone and stabilised it, but there we go. <laughs> Can't be helped, not doing really it really should have done. And my arm was hurting trying oh. to hold the phone on the side. Bless you, not such a weakling. I'm so brave, the things That's I do. So brave, <laughs> so brave. Before we start, is there anything that you want to discuss about this case? Yeah, I think I, um, just that... It's amazing how quickly, as a teenager, her life just suddenly, it was like someone flipped a switch. Yeah. That, you know, she'd been a very normal teenager. And then suddenly... Completely com- different. Completely off the rails. If you've got kids at home and you've got teenagers at home and you think they're the teenagers from hell, which sometimes, I have to admit, I think we have, <gasps> but we don't, this puts it into perspective. All of our teenagers are wonderful. Uh, of course they're all wonderful, but they're also teenagers. Yes, that's true thing that I would like to point out on this case is as we go through it, you see someone who in Joanna is very much wanting to be the centre of attention. Yes. And as you go through it, she does seem to do things to shock people, not always in just a gruesome way, but sometimes just left of centre, it throws people. Just completely random behaviour. Yeah. This story is different to most. For starters, it has the female serial killer, as we've said. Not only that, but one of her accomplices was seven feet Three inches tall. Blimey, that is really tall. That is massive. Well, you know, I know people who are, you know, six foot six, and that's really tall. Your uncle's six foot eight, is he? Six foot seven. Oh, I've got one six foot six and one six foot seven. Okay. And, and they're, you know, they're both giants. And they are, they're massive. Yeah. And they have to duck to go through a normal doorway. <laughs> both, both of them, you know, are, are ducking. I, I laugh at that mental image. I wouldn't laugh if they did it 
No. Apparently. Because <laughs> they're too big. No, but then seven foot three. How would you ever sleep in a bed? How would you drive around? How would you do anything? Joanna Dennehy killed three men and left two with serious injuries, all in just two weeks. All five men had multiple stab wounds and some had been left in humiliating poses. But let's start by introducing 53-year-old Kevin Lee. Kevin was a married letting agent at Quicklets and he worked to get accommodation for vulnerable or homeless people. Joanna met Kevin when she had been released from prison after serving 14 weeks for theft and she was looking for a home. Kevin wasn't put off by Joanna's appearance. A poorly self-tattooed star was prominent on her right cheek just below her eye. Classy. Nice, isn't it? And if rocking the poor decision to have a bad tattoo on her face look wasn't enough, Joanna also exaggerated her life story. She told Kevin that she had served eight years for killing her father after he had raped her, as well as burning two people in a house fire and hitting two people whilst in a car. Eight years. I mean, all of that... it doesn't add up, does it, For yeah. if you're going to get put away? And the only thing I could think of is maybe because she was so young at the time. I mean, she was in her late 20s. She couldn't say that she did 25 years or 20 years because it just doesn't add up. No. I think so. Well, she, she just seems very immature. Yeah. I mean, the attention-seeking behaviour just generally is a very immature characteristic. Yeah. But, I mean, this is the first time we see in this story that she is wanting to be the centre of attention and she, you know, the, the lies that she's coming out with. Joanna later got diagnosed as a pathological liar with psychopathic tendencies as well as being told that she had paraphilia sadomasochism which is a psychiatric sexual disorder which according to psychologytoday.com is a condition which can quote involve recurrent intense sexually arousing fantasies urges or behaviours that are distressing or disabling and have the potential to cause harm to oneself or others. In other words it causes the sufferer to seek out sexual activity that involves humiliating other people or causing them pain. If it was meant to scare Kevin off, it didn't. I think we can assume that he dealt with a wide range of people in his line of work, and not all of them would be the types you'd want to meet in a dark alleyway. More than that, though, Kevin and Joanna got on so well that Kevin employed Joanna and her friend Gary Richards, better known as Stretch, which is how we will refer to him from now on, because he was as we said before, a massive seven foot three inches tall. And to top it all off, Kevin and Joanna also started a sexual relationship. Kevin even confided to a friend that Joanna wanted to, quote, dress me up and rape me, end quote. Dennehy would often wear handcuffs attached to her trousers and was obsessed with violent pornography. She was also a habitual self-harmer, even harming herself during sex. And if you haven't guessed already from the dress me up and rape me comment, Joanna's relationship with Kevin was very sexual. The work that Joanna and Stretch carried out for Kevin can basically be described as bailiff work. As we'll go on to see, Joanna could be violent and this type of job meant that Joanna could act out her aggression whenever she wanted to. Although with a bloke standing 7 foot 3 inches tall standing next to her, I'm not too sure that many people would have troubled her. No, I certainly wouldn't have. No. Both Joanna and Stretch were given free board for the work, which also meant that Joanna could keep her housing benefit all for herself. Lastly, as if the job and the sex wasn't enough, Kevin also bought her a car, although it's worthy of note that the only one who ever seemed to drive it was Stretch. It doesn't say anywhere what type of car it was, but in my heart of hearts, I'm really hoping it was a Mini. Well, my six foot seven uncle had a Mini at one point. 
Yeah, the old minis were really good. They were really spacious because yeah. it was basically nothing underneath the chair, yeah. was there? Apparently, he used to fold himself out of it. <laughs> <laughs> Took out the front seat and sat in the back to drive it. I think they, I think they altered it because obviously my other uncle's a mechanic, so I think they did actually move the seat back to give him more leg room. Blimey. <laughs> On 29th of March 2013, Kevin was due to meet Joanna at her house, but didn't return home after the appointment. This was unusual for Kevin and his wife. Yeah, spoiler alert, he was married with kids. Mm. His wife, Christina, was worried. She tried calling him over and over that night, but never got a response. Can you just imagine if you thought you were happily married at that point and then they just disappear? Yeah. And, oh. I'd be so worried. When she wasn't able to get through to him the next day, she reported him missing to the police. Things moved quickly from there, as the same day police found Kevin's burnt-out car on a farm track in Yaxley. Sadly... They found his body the next day in a ditch along the A16 near Newborough. Martin Brunning was the senior investigator on call at the time and he recalls how shocked they were at the discovery. Kevin's body was found laying face down in a drainage ditch, dressed in a black sequin dress which had been pulled up above the waist, leaving his backside fully exposed. This led police to initially believe that this had been part of a sex game that had gone wrong. Their minds were quickly changed, though, when a closer inspection revealed that Kevin had died from five stab wounds to the chest. This quickly put paid to any thoughts that this was an accident. On closer inspection, the team realised that the dress that Kevin was wearing was also covered in stab holes, revealing that he'd been wearing the dress when he'd been murdered. As the ditch was in a fairly remote part of the Fens, there was no CCTV footage of any incidents, and given the sparseness, there were likely to be few witnesses. In order to gain some traction in the case, the police decided to look further into Kevin's life, as you hoped they would. Hmm. Given how he was dressed, they had wondered whether he had a secret life outside of his family home, and what better place to start than by going through his phone. Upon checking the phone records, alongside the missed calls from his worried wife on the evening of his disappearance, police found a mobile number that Kevin had been contacting a lot. When they checked the mobile phone mask records, it revealed that this phone had been in the same place as Kevin on the night that he failed to return home. Technology is marvellous for it's those things. Boy, isn't it? That number belonged to Joanna Denny. Joanna immediately became the prime suspect in the case. The police soon gained entry to her house, but Joanna was nowhere to be seen. There was, however, a blood-stained mattress in the garden, which the police believed would be proof linking Joanna to the murder. See, some gardens have a water feature, other gardens have a blood-soaked mattress feature. Or, as we had in the other week, five bin bags <laughs> full, full of blood-stained bedding. Yeah. I don't know why I find that funny. Oh, it's bizarre. When the blood on the mattress was tested, though, it was revealed to be from somebody that was not Kevin. Before they could look into the murder any further, the police got involved of another missing man, John Chapman, a Royal Navy veteran and another quick-let client. Just in case you can hear some noise in the background, it's worth saying here that Merlin, our cat, is having a funny five minutes. He's normally very placid and shy, and at the moment he's in here while we're recording, playing with his toy mouse and generally being a home in the backside. He's just leaping around the room. Mm. <laughs> with the disappearance of Chapman and the links to Quicklet, the police decided to go public with an appeal. And you can see why when you have a woman with a bad facial tattoo alongside a seven foot three inch accomplice, you'd certainly remember bumping into them. 
A lead came in quickly from another police officer, this time in Norfolk. Was it another murder? A link to yet another missing person? The discovery of Kevin Lee's whereabouts? No. Dennehy and Stretch had filled their car with petrol and stolen biscuits from a petrol station and driven off without paying. <laughs> Is that referred to as pump and dump, or am I getting that confused with the term for a one-night stand? Ew. Well, there's definitely a term for really? filling up and, yeah. I should have Googled that, actually, rather than you just leaving it. really should have done <laughs> It's worth noting for any international listeners, in the UK, all major petrol stations have CCTV, and so now the police had the registration number of the car they were driving and a recent location. And most petrol stations also have a CCTV inside the shops. They will probably have their yep. actual faces on CCTV as well. And not only that, most petrol stations in the UK normally have someone looking very, very, very bored behind the counter. <laughs> Nothing to do with the case, but it's true. <laughs> Using automatic number plate recognition, AMPR, the police scanned the UK motorways where they followed the car remotely as it made its way down the M5 motorway. Along the way, Dennehy and Stretch stopped to steal a camera which they then used to take touristy photos of themselves. What? Do they think there's some type of Bonnie and Clyde scenario? Do, do you know what? It's funny you said that because she does refer... I haven't put it in the story but she does refer to herself as wanting to be Bonnie and Clyde. Oh, there you go then. So she's trying to do her own little mini-movie of her spree. They were heading to Kington in Herefordshire, just two miles from the Welsh border. They wanted to meet Mark Lloyd, a petty thief that knew Gary Stretch from jail and someone who was a known fencer of stolen goods. Exactly what the pair needed so they could sell some of their stolen goods to raise some money. They arranged to meet Mark Lloyd at his home address to negotiate a price. Joanna realised immediately that Mark was a man who was experienced at handling stolen goods. Although Stretch had told her what he did for a living, she didn't realise just how much stolen property Mark Lloyd handled. His house was full of phones and other electronics. Joanna quickly pulled a knife on Mark, telling him, quote, I've killed three people already and I'm looking to kill more. End quote. Mark later confessed to being terrified and he commented that he felt as though Joanna was in complete control of Gary Stretch. It's easy to see why, because all accounts do seem to point to the fact that Stretch did anything that Joanna asked of him. Mm. And in case you've picked up on the fact that she said she's killed three people already, we are coming on to that. Yes. In fact, Joanna seems to revel in her ability to control people, specifically men. She controlled Mark Lloyd with fear, Kevin Lee through sex, and seemingly Gary Stretch just through pure charisma. She is not only someone that you would describe as a manipulative, but she seems to be someone that could bask in that description. Knife in hand, she coerced Mark into going with them, making him drive to Hereford to sell not only the stuff they had stolen en route, but also the stuff that they had just stolen from him. In for a penny, in for a pound? Yes. And Joanna continued taking pictures as she was being driven by Stretch with Mark Lloyd, also taking the opportunity to drink whiskey during the 45-minute journey from Kington to Hereford. She made Mark and Stretch pose together, forcing Lloyd to drink from the whiskey bottle as she screamed with laughter. She even stopped to force Lloyd to buy her cigarettes from a shop as she held a knife to his back. She really gets off on the power, doesn't she? She does. She really does. Once back in the car, Joanna revealed that she wanted to kill more people, just a random member of the public, telling Gary Stretch, quote, you've had your fun, now it's my turn, end quote. Which bit was the fun bit for Gary? I'm assuming being bossed around by her, but... Hmm. According to Lloyd, she added, quote, No women, no children, find me a man to kill. End quote. Now, I believe I have my feminist traits. 
a bit too far. <laughs> Stretch saw a random man on the street and asked simply, will he do? That man was Robin Bereza, a retired firefighter, a normal, innocent man who was walking home with his dog and who got picked at random. Joanna got out of the car and attacked Robin from behind in a frenzied knife attack. The assault took place just a few yards from his front door and Robin was stabbed multiple times in the back. This was just after 3pm, but despite running the risk of an area being busy with mums and kids negotiating the school run, it didn't stop Joanna. She left Robin laying bleeding in the street as she made her way back to the car, kissed Gary and drove off. And it's interesting to note that neither Stretch or Mark tried escaping at this stage. I dare say Mark Lloyd was terrified and I dare say Gary was under her spell, but... Maybe Mark think... was scared of Gary. Well, I would be. Mark Lloyd told police that he couldn't believe what he'd seen. And I suspect at this point, if he'd been scared before, having seen that, he must have been absolutely terrified. Dennehy and Stretch wasted no time in looking for their next victim. And they soon found John Rogers, a 56-year-old man that was out walking his dog in Hereford. Like Robin, John was close to home when he was attacked. This time, however, the attack was caught on camera thanks to a nearby CCTV. In the footage, which I must admit I haven't seen, so this is all taken from reports I could find online, Dennehy casually walks up to John and starts talking to him about his dog, which, if you're a dog owner or a dog walker, you're happily engaged in conversation about. Yes. John Rogers does engage her in conversation when she suddenly starts her frenzied attack on him, stabbing him several times, then his violent attack caused John to fall face down on the floor. She then turns him over and continues stabbing him in the front. By the time he was finished, John Rogers was left with over 30 stab wounds in the back, chest and abdomen. I mean, that is the absolute definition of a frenzied attack, isn't it? Oh, I mean, mean, God. She must have been physically exhausted, you would have thought. She must have been knackered. She must have been... She must have run out of places to stab on the back to turn him over. Get a fresh canvas. And once again, once she'd finished, she turned away from the body and sauntered back to the car, leaving John laying, dying, in a pool of his own blood. Mark Lloyd said that when she got back in the car, she simply said, quote, That was nice. I need to do some more. End quote. And as they drove away, he remembers seeing Rogers trying to crawl away. Dennehy apparently didn't even look back. And this is a, another example of what I think she's trying to do in shocking people by being very relaxed and calm. Yeah. Hmm. Due to the busy time of day that the attacks took place, both victims were found by members of the public fairly quickly. Can you imagine stumbling across that in the street? I don't even know how I would begin to react. No, it'd just be too horrific, wouldn't it? Both men were rushed to hospital. Amazingly, both men survived. Mark Lloyd was convinced that he would be killed next. Not surprised. Mm. After all, he was a witness to what everyone in the car must have believed was two murders. Fortunately for him, Joanna never got the chance. Taking the decision to stop off at a row of shops close to where they'd attacked Rogers, which seems odd, because why would you stop at all unless you had to? I know. Unless murdering people gives you the munchies. I think this is just more of the... I'm so unconcerned with what I've just done that I'm just going to go shopping. It, it does seem like it's a fucking day trip. Yes. Whilst they were parked up, they were caught by police. And you may think that following such a brutal and bloody journey in the lead-up to being found, Joanna would have chosen to try to carry on with her fun 
and go out in a self-perceived blaze of glory. Mm. Bizarrely, she surrendered quickly and was peacefully arrested at the scene. When she's taken back to the station, CCTV footage shows her laughing and joking with the staff there. You can see her flirting with the officers of duty, and on top of that, she was happily telling racist jokes. That didn't surprise me. No. It was only after her arrest that Joanna was diagnosed with psychopathic tendencies, so low level of empathy, low impulse control, and a low boredom threshold. In February 2012, she was diagnosed as having antisocial personality disorder and obsessive compulsive disorder. She's ticking all the boxes, isn't she? Mm-hmm. When she was arrested, her parents were called, and this was the first time that they had known of her whereabouts in 10 years. They watched the CCTV footage and remarked that they didn't recognise the behaviour of their daughter. At the time of her arrest, the police were only aware of the men she had attacked in the street, Lee, Robin and John. A body found in Thorny Dyke, instantly, English place names are just... Amazing. Should just say, we should take a photo of it. We've got a picture that you bought in the uh, kitchen avenue of a list of rude names in the UK. It's from a company called Marvelous Maps, and it's it is all of the (laughs) rude place names around, which is just brilliant. Although I I bought it for myself for a Christmas present, and I hung it up on the wall, and then obviously my two children, who were quite a bit younger then, started reading (laughs) all these rude knobend. Oh, what have I done? Um, anyway, back to Thorny Dyke, which is a village in northeast Peterborough, and a body was reported to the police on the same day that Denahay was arrested. John Chapman had been missing for five days at this point, and seeing as he had links to Kevin Lee and Denahay, police were quick to put the clues together. It turns out the bloody mattress found in Denahay's garden was covered in John Chapman's blood and it was theorised that he'd been killed in the bedroom, possibly when unconscious, due to the lack of a struggle indicated by his wounds. In fact, it was amazing that Dennehy hadn't been caught sooner. After killing Chapman, she'd called a friend, believed to be Stretch, and sang Oops, I Did It Again, a song by Britney Spears, down the phone. But the friend didn't report to the police. A few hours later, they got another call to tell them there were two bodies in the ditch. Oh my God. Two, bo- hang on. Two bodies in the two ditch. Two bodies in the same ditch. So that second body was identified as 31-year-old Lukas Slabowski. He was said to be a regular drug user who's described in many sources as prone to sleeping rough, although in other places it's said that he was then his roommate, and there's, there's some confusion here. Yes. They shared a house in the city of Peterborough, and the Polish native believed that he was then his boyfriend. Then he used this to convince him to meet her at an empty house that belonged to a landlord, mm-hmm. and CCTV from the 19th of March shows his final movements. Lucas can be seen withdrawing cash and then heading towards Joanna's home address. Shortly after he entered the home, Denahay blindfolded him and stabbed him to death, believed by police to have been in the bathroom of the property, although blood was also found in the living room. And again, I know we've said this before, but it amazes me how police can go, oh, it happened here, then it moved here, and it... Yes. Yeah, it is quite amazing. Lucas was the last victim to be found, but he had been Denahay's first kill, ten days before Chapman and Lee. It was also the first time that Stretch had gotten involved in the gruesome activity, as Danahay called on him and another friend called Leslie Layton to dispose of the body. How nice is that friends like that? I've got a dead body here, can you help me get rid of it and not tell anyone? I can't think of a single person I could phone to help me, you know, friend I could phone to say, come help me get rid of this body. I could think of loads of friends I could phone and, and they might help me out, but I'd have to kill them afterwards. 
and get rid of their body. I just, I just no, knock off my friends one by one. In yet another display of oddness, after murdering Lucas, Dennehy had boasted to people on her estate that she'd killed. It's like she wants to get caught. Yes, it is. She even showed a 14-year-old girl the contents of her wheelie bin, a bin that at the time contained Lucas's body, which hadn't yet been moved. That's really bizarre. It's really bizarre. And do you know what's odd? It's, it's odd that she didn't want to attack children. She only wanted to attack men, not women or children. But it seems that psychologically scarring them doesn't seem to matter. I don't think she saw it that way. I think she first went off the rails when she was 14. Yeah. And I think maybe she was maybe in trying to encourage other children of that age range, maybe. Maybe she saw in that girl, thought, oh, that's like me when I was that age. I would love to have seen this. Okay. Or maybe she thought she was toughening her up or something. Yeah, I don't know. I don't the think fact... she's trying to scar them. I think she thinks that they're going to want to see that or be excited by it. The fact that a 14-year-old then didn't report it by the sound of it. I know. As well. The pre-trial took place on the 18th of November 2013 and Dennehy was up against five charges, three murders and two attempted murders. After just ten minutes, Dennehy pleaded guilty. There was no long drawn out defence, no drama, just a quick admission of guilt. Uncommon for serial killers who are often seen to plead not guilty, which then lets them relive the drama of the killing through the courtroom. Yes. A few months later, on the 28th of February 2014, Dennehy was sentenced at the Old Bailey in London. Judge Justice Spencer. Let me stop you there. Disappointing judge name. I know. It's not really a judge name, is it? He needs a double-barrelled. He does. Yeah, I'm sure he must be something more than Judge Justice Spencer. I wonder what his first name is. Ooh, Hermione know. or something odd. Quentin. Quentin. Tarquin. I always go for Quentin. You always do. <laughs> so, Judge Justice Spencer handed down a whole-of-life prison term, making Dennehy only the third woman in the UK after Myra Hindley, the Moors murderer, and Rose West, to be given that sentence. Declaring her to be, quote, a cruel, calculating, selfish and manipulative serial killer, end quote. He was proven right as Dennehy laughed and smiled as he addressed her and the court. Gary Stretch Richards was sentenced to three counts of preventing lawful burial of a body and two counts of attempted murder. He was sentenced to life with a minimum term of 19 years, and if you think that's a harsh sentence because he didn't kill or injure anybody, it was handed down because he enabled the killing of John Roberts after seeing what Dennehy had already done and who she'd already killed. Yes. And to be fair, he was involved in some way in all of those incidents. Yeah. Whether it was clearing up afterwards with a body, if at any of those moments he had said to the police, this is what's happened. Yeah. Those other people might not have died. He was definitely under under her spell, wasn't he? I he mean, was. there's no doubt about it. Mm. It also goes on to say that Leighton, who isn't mentioned much anywhere other than he helped get rid of the body and he was at the trial, Leighton was jailed for a total of 14 years for preventing lawful and decent burial and perverting the court of justice. Mm. A third man, who is mentioned nowhere else, Robert Moore, 55, of Belvoir Way in Peterborough, was jailed for three years for assisting Dennehy. Don't know what he did, how he did it, when he did it. Maybe he pushed the wheel in. Maybe. Mark Lloyd was found to have no case to answer. As for Joanna's family, they don't speak to her and haven't done for some time before her spree. Raising her in Harpenden, Hertfordshire, Joanna had good grades growing up. She was a sensitive soul who it said would cry when she stepped on a worm. But age 13, she started drinking and playing truant from school and becoming violent. 
A year later, aged 14, she started a relationship with John Trainer, who was 20 years old at the time. Although her parents did their best to ingratiate Trainer, despite the age gap, in the hope that it may bring Dennehy back in line, it was fruitless. Dennehy left home a short while later, still aged 14. Her mum says now, quote, She doesn't exist to me anymore. She's not my daughter. My Joe left at 14 and never came home. End quote. I suppose that's how you'd have to look on it, I think. I don't know how you could possibly forgive yourself yeah. for, you know, what had gone so wrong with your daughter at that point. Yeah. Your child. And that's it. And with, was it Kevin Lee that she murdered first, the married man? Yes. His family, um, and again, I haven't put it in here, but his family went on record saying something like, he wasn't the man that everyone thinks he was because he was obviously brainwashed by this woman. Yes. And it's completely different. Yeah. In her newfound freedom, Dennehy didn't calm down at all. And despite having what seems to be a decent background and a good start in life, although Dennehy claims that she was sexually abused, but never revealed who by, and her sister Maria says that that never happened. Should just point out, it does mean it didn't happen, but yeah. all signs point to it. Yes. She had a history of self-harm, often a sign of sexual abuse. What can't be disputed is that Dennehy displayed signs of being extremely troubled from an early age. From the time she was a teenager, Dennehy was said to be a heavy drinker and drug user, with scars all over her body caused by self-inflicted razor blade cuts. She was already rebelling before she met Trainer, and within two years of moving out, they were sleeping rough. She was only 16 at the time. Mm. That said, life did seem to get back on track shortly after. They moved into a house in Luton when she was 16, and they had two kids together. But this is where her relationship with her parents went from being really fractured to being completely broken down. And the reason? She told her parents they could only see their grandchildren if they paid her. Oh my That's God, horrible, that is absolutely awful. Dennehy didn't bond with her children. Not really that surprised since she just sees them as some type of meal ticket. Yeah. And after the second child was born, Dennehy vanished for 18 months, leaving the kids with their father. 18 months? It's ridiculous, isn't it? They, they couldn't have even known her at that point. No, I mean, the oldest would have been seven years old when the youngest was born, I think they said. Seven right. years between two. So she'd have known her mum. And then when you're seven years old, to have your mum go missing for no reason? Mm. Despite this, when she was around, she was said to be a good mother and protective of her children. But there were times when she wasn't so careful, knocking them down the stairs or putting them in boiling bath water, normally while paralytically drunk. John Trainer. The father of Dennehy's two children was treated horribly by Dennehy. She cheated on him many times with men and women, left him alone with the kids for days or weeks at a time, and actually for 18 months, even yeah. after he took her back following her year and a half absence. But if anything, she was worse towards him when she returned. She is said to have often kicked and punched Trainer and threatened him with knives. He only chose to leave when she came home drunk one night and started stabbing the floor and threatening him. Isn't it odd? It just takes a... Because I know that's extreme behaviour, but it doesn't seem any more extreme than what he's already suffered. So yeah. it must have been just a... It's just too point much. For him. Yeah. Yes. He kicked Dennehy out and left her, but she turned up at the school the next day, screaming and being abusive. Fearing for their lives, Trainer picked the kids up at lunchtime and fled with them. His mum had to clear out the house and sell everything while he moved away from the area and just kept away from Dennehy. He now has a new partner and they are bringing up the kids together. Dennehy's life continued on a downward spiral. By 2012, she was also working as a prostitute and regularly stole in order to get money to pay for drugs and alcohol. She carried knives, 
she got into trouble for assault, and she was finally given a 14-week sentence for theft. Following her arrest for theft in February 2012, the then 29-year-old was admitted to hospital for psychiatric treatment, and this is where she was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder and antisocial disorder, and this is also where we started the story. While on remand before her trial, prison staff found evidence of a plan that Dennehy had made to escape jail written in her diary. This involved killing or seriously injuring a prison guard, cutting off one of their fingers, which she then planned to use to fool the biometric system in the prison. This led to Dennehy being put in solitary confinement from September 2013 to September 2015, a period which straddled her trial. She claims that isolation left her tearful and upset, and led to self-harm. The thing is, if you're going to plan an escape from jail, you don't write it in your diary and leave it in your prison cell. It's just, it seems just typical of her though. She, she doesn't think things through and then she's quite happy to be caught. Yeah, it's either that or she does think things through knowing that she's going to get caught and she can, again, put another... Put a spin on it. Oh, yeah. Maybe put another paragraph in her life story. Mm. Even now in HMP Bronzefield, Dennehy likes to be the centre of attention. She sends explicit and handwritten letters to men, one of whom even proposed last year. Do you, know what, you have I have all these friends who are on plenty of fish mm. trying to find you know the perfect partner or whatever or trying to find someone to be loved by. All they've got to do is murder three people. And, you know, you've got somebody there who's in prison for the rest of their life with suitors. Yeah. It's insane. It's funny because as you read through stories about her online, she gets described as being very beautiful and attractive. She's not. No, she she must have that charisma. I mean, do you know what? I dare say she has because every everyone that you speak to, and it's, we speak to, we haven't interviewed people. Everything <laughs> you read about her, people say she has that charisma. She's got that something. Well, even her um, her counsel for the, for the trial had said how he she was charismatic, and he could see how how people would uh, sort of want to be around her. Yeah. Mm. I would say that there was there's an there's quite a bit actually available about this case. Mm. Um, there was um, an article in Closer magazine, which is obviously not ideal <laughs> research <laughs> the, fodder. The hive of investigative <laughs> However, it was um, an article with her sister, Maria, that was mm. talking about how she'd just completely changed and Maria was saying basically that you know, she'd pretty much disowned her. Yeah. Um, and nothing to do with her and her family felt the same, you know, her parents felt the same way. Um, and also there was an article, I think it was in one of the tabloid newspapers, but with Dennehy's daughter, yeah, because her eldest daughter must be, I mean, we're 2020 now, so she must be kicking on 1920. She's 19 or 20 now, and she got back in touch with her mum. Um, she wrote her a letter in 2018 mm. at prison, and she's actually gone and met her for the first time, I think last year, in prison, and had said that although it was, you know, lovely to see her, and she has fond memories of her from when mm. she was a small child, and um, doing arts and crafts and things, that she deserved to be in prison for the rest of her life for what she's done. Yeah. Must be difficult getting back in touch and trying to build that bridge with someone who's never going to get out, who you know has done extremely bad things, mm. and who did effectively abandon you yeah. twice. Yeah. And that is the case of Joanna Dennehy and the Peterborough Ditch Murders. What are your thoughts? She's been given the same sentence as Myra Hindley and Rose West, two of the UK's most notorious serial killers. Had you heard of Joanna Dennehy before? It's odd because Rose West and Mari Hindley are very, very household names, but you say Joanna Dennehy to people and they don't know her. No. Um, and this is only a few years ago. It's not like it was a long and distant no. memory. No, I say, and there is, there has been a huge amount of coverage of it as well. Mm. Oh, there's an awful lot out there when you start reading into it. 
I wonder if the reason she's not as notorious is because she targeted men and not children. Yes, possibly. If you think about the other two. Well, Rose West didn't necessarily target just children. I know she was kind of abusive that way, mm. but she, I mean, she serial killer with Fred West, wasn't she? So. Yes. Anyway, let us know your thoughts. Let us know by emailing us. You can reach me, Dan, at sublimetruecrime.com. And me, Elaine, at sublimetruecrime.com. Or come and join us on our Facebook group. Don't forget, if you like the podcast, please click subscribe. That way you can be the first to know when a new episode is live on Sublime Sundays. Please join us again next time for another Sublime True Crime.